Our scripture reading today comes from James chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And your corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. During the summer of my junior year in college, I spent 10 weeks in Thailand on a summer mission trip sponsored by my college. I spent that time at a Thai Bible school in northern Thailand near the small town of Peao. The missionaries were seeking to train a new generation of Christian leaders in Thailand and were trying to make the school self-supporting by raising its own food. I worked with an agriculturalist from Switzerland that was overseeing the project. That was my first exposure to a third world culture and there are many striking things I remember from that time. During my time there, it was the rainy season, moonsun season, and the nearby lake overflowed its banks and flooded the main road that ran from the school to the town. Freddie, the fellow that I worked with, had a motorcycle at a high exhaust so we could ride through over two feet of water into town. On one such trip into town when I was sitting on the back of his bike, I noticed an older gentleman sitting up on a chair, kind of a bench with his feet up in the main room of his small home as floodwaters were passing through. His response was like saying a very ho-hum kind of way, this is just a normal day in life like nothing is different. Now that's a very different response from the people who were flooded out by the Hurricane Ian in Florida this past summer. You didn't see people sitting on their roofs fishing in the floodwaters. In my reading, I came across this illustration that was shared by Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. If you think back to 2004, there was a great tsunami in the Indian Ocean that killed over 200,000 people in Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. Aid flooded in from all over the world. Counselors and social workers came from America to help console the people, to help them deal with the tragedy. Yes, they came alongside people who needed comfort and needed to grieve at the loss of loved ones, but they also discovered something else. The people needed to grieve, but they weren't devastated by all the destruction in the same way that we would be. They got back to life, living and making the best of the situation very quickly. And that was shocking to those who came to help them deal with the tragedy. Why? Because that was so different from how people 
generally respond to those kinds of tragedies here in our country. We are often devastated far beyond just the normal grieving process. The people there recognized that they could not control life. That was a big difference. That there were forces and situations in life that were way beyond their control. They recognized that difficulties and sufferings were a part of life. They just had to accept it, to deal with it, and to move on. And our text today is dealing with this exact issue. It explains why people living in the third world personally deal with suffering and disasters differently than we do here in America. At first glance, it would appear that our text deals with two very different themes. In chapter 4, it deals with planning. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That sounds like a sound business plan. Someone's thinking about how to build their business. And from our perspective, that sounds like a good thing. And then in chapter 5, James begins, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Here it sounds like James is going back to a theme that talks about the rich and how greedy they are. Two very different themes. But in reality, they're very much tied together. And James makes that clear when he begins both sections with, Come now, you people. Other translations will say, look, you people, listen up, you people. That's pretty strong language that is saying a rebuke is coming. And what James is saying is, pay attention now. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong in your thinking and living. James is directly challenging prevailing human wisdom. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 25. Even the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, I can't think of a text that is more appropriate to the world in which we live today. Here, and this was also almost, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. And the first thing our text is telling us is, it is an illusion to think we can control life. James is not putting down planning. He's not saying it's wrong to make plans. Let's be clear about that. God's wisdom tells us that we should plan. Proverbs is pretty clear about this. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Proverbs 21.5. Plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Proverbs 15.22. God's wisdom in Scripture clearly says it is good to plan. Jesus even references appropriateness of planning in a few places. So what is the issue here? The issue here is that in our planning, we can be very arrogant and think that we can control all of life. James says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boasting is a theme in scripture and it was often a ritual part of warfare. You know, have you ever watched some of the old war movies where, whether it's a civil war or go way back in when troops are getting ready to charge the enemy? What do the commanders do? They stand in front of the troops and they challenge them and encourage them. They cheer. You know, they, they go for God, country, for queen, for whatever. They're psyching them up to believe that they will win so that they'll not hesitate to run forward and charge at the enemy. 
We see the same thing in football movies where they coach or team leaders. We'll psych up the rest of the team, getting them ready to start the game to crush the other team. That process is called boasting. James is addressing Christians here who think they are in control. They've made their plans and they are boasting and being arrogant. They're boasting in their plans saying, we have life under control and we have it managed and we can deal with it. But the Bible says all such boasting is evil. Jeremiah 9 says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let the mighty man boast in his might. Let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Don't boast in your wisdom or your power or your strength or in your planning. You don't really control the future. Only God does. James is saying that we are not putting our trust, putting our trust in planning in our ability to control life. And that means we're not trusting God if that's what we're doing. And James goes on to say in the very next verse, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So he is saying such boasting and arrogance in our own planning and our ability to control the future is sin. In essence, one is saying we can handle life without God. It's a sin of omission. Instead of trusting God, we're trusting in our own ability. It's that kind of practical atheism we talked about last week. Today in America, more than in any other culture in the history of the world, we believe we can control the future. We believe a person can be whatever you choose to be. If you know what you want, you work hard for it, you plan, and you can make it happen. Do you remember the Back to the Future series of movies? At the end of the first movie, Dr. Brown, Charles Marty McFly, the future is whatever you make it. We believe we can plan and make the future whatever we want. So we choose what we want to do. We plan to get there. We work hard. We make our financial plans for the future to ensure our kids' education, to ensure a good retirement. We buy insurance for everything to make sure we're protected from every kind of disaster. We seek to live a healthy life, eat right, exercise, get our vaccines, avoid unhealthy practices in order to live long, ensuring our future. We use anti-aging cream, plastic surgery, and Botox to keep us young, to slow down the aging process. Why do we do that? We want to control life. And we base our confidence in our plans and ability to control life. And as a culture, we are a people who are least prepared for disasters and difficulties we encounter in life. We think that if we plan right, we will be exempt from difficulties and sufferings. And when difficulties come, it shatters our illusion that we're in control. And that wipes us out emotionally, physically, spiritually. It destroys our hope. Now, God doesn't say that kind of planning is wrong. Our attitudes and perseverance and hard work are important. But there are many things beyond our control that make our success possible. Our circumstances in life, our culture, where we're born, our upbringing, our education, the opportunities around us, and our timing and pursuing our dreams are all things that are beyond our control. When we think we control our life, we are totally unprepared for the difficulties and challenges in life. 
Suppose you who are here today were born in some rural, third-world country. Would you be sitting here today? Would you be comfortable in your retirement today? Would you have the financial resources you have today? Probably not. That's why other cultures in this world deal with suffering and difficulties in life much more successfully than we do. They recognize they don't control life. And James is telling us that if we think we can control life, we are fools. <laughs> can you think of a more appropriate message to our culture and country today? And to teach us, each, and to each of us, as we seek to navigate life and serve God. James tells us first, it's an illusion to think we can control life. And then he gives us two reasons why we can't, don't control life. The very obvious one is we don't know the future. Without knowing the future, we can't control or manage risk and what will happen. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, James says. This is pretty obvious, but we often overlook it. I have the classic example from my own life to point this out. When I was to start seminary, we moved to Austin, New York, and bought what I call a little Tennessee shack. I eventually had to redo everything in the house, plumbing, electrical, windows, walls, heat, siding, doors. And I did that while going to school and working part-time. And after three years, I was exhausted. The family was stressed, and I was just halfway finished with my schooling. I knew something needed to change. So I took a semester off, worked full-time, and spent every extra hour finish, finishing the remodeling of the house. We bought the house for $27,000. We then refinanced for $90,000, to pay for the remodeling supplies and to have enough cash so I could quit work and go to school full-time and finish school in a year and a half. When I accepted my first call to Pastor and Revere, we went to put the house on the market at $165,000. Housing prices had been appreciating. But it was 1988 and the recession hit. Housing prices fell faster than we could drop the price of the house. We had a great realtor who knew the market well, our, but our house was very unusual and it took a hard hit and fell below the, the, the amount of our mortgage. We couldn't sell it without incurring massive debt. Money owed the bank and the capital gains we would have had to pay at that time. So we moved and gave the house back to the bank. They foreclosed. Now, we, we knew we were called to Revere, but their salary was ridiculously low for a family with five children because before me they had a part-time pastor and they never had to pay a livable cash salary. We had planned on having extra cash from the sale to help us get by, but all our plans were blown out of the water. We simply don't know the future. I had to go back to the church and ask them to increase my salary by over 50%. Now, amazingly, they agreed, although some really resented it because they thought I was being greedy and never saw a raise in 12 years there. But God came through. During my first year, Head Start came to us to rent space for a classroom and started paying the church $1,000 a month, which more than covered my raise. We planned, but we could not see the future. All our plans went out the window, but God still provided and accomplished his purposes. We are not in control. God is in control. Hurricane Ian was especially devastating this September in Florida because the flooding hit so many areas that had never been flooded before. 
in those areas, people didn't have flood insurance because there was no history of flooding there. But they couldn't predict the future and lost everything, and their homes didn't have flood insurance. So their regular home insurance would not cover their loss. Based on past history, they thought they were prepared, but they couldn't predict the future. James gives us a second reason. First, it's an illusion to think we can control life. He then gives us two reasons. The various obvious one is we don't know the future. The second reason we don't control life is God is the one who is ultimately controls life. James says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This brings us to one of those difficult conundrum, conub, conub, conundrums. Do we have free will or is everything determined by God? Do our personal choices matter or is everything determined by God? Our culture says God's irrelevant and only our personal choices matter. As Christians, sometimes we go the opposite way and act indirectly blame everything on God. It must have or must not have been God's will. And we have to remember sometimes that I've said over and over, God is never the cause of death, suffering, or natural disasters we experience in life. He's never the source of his tragedy. Those tragedies are never in his will. But God's wisdom says it's really both and. God will accomplish his purposes. He's in control, but we also have to make choices. Proverbs has an interesting saying that addresses this. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Scripture tells us that the plan to make choices, but recognize that God is going to accomplish his purposes no matter what we plan. Jesus is a classic example. His death and resurrection was in the plan of God. God had foreordained it, and we see that throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus still had to make a choice in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to go to the cross, but he chose to obey his father. Your will be done. And similarly, Pilate and the religious leaders had to make a choice about what to do with Jesus. And similarly, God held them responsible for their choice to put Jesus to death. That's what Peter expresses in Acts 2 in his sermon at Pentecost. God is sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes, but he respects our choices and he holds us accountable for them. No matter what we choose, God is going to accomplish his purposes in this world. And at the same time, he respects us as people and respects our choices, and he holds us accountable. But the reality is that we're not qualified to control the future. We can't see the future, and even though we think we can control the future, we're prone to worry a great deal about the future. The more we think we can control the future, the more we tend to worry about it. The more we think we can control, the more we tend to worry about it. What if the unexpected happens? What if it doesn't work out? You see, in God's wisdom, the best antidote for not worrying about the future is to believe that God is in control. So first, James tells us that, one, it's an illusion to think we can control life. And he explains why that is true. Then he tells us, secondly, the illusion that we can control life leads to skewed thinking and how we view our money is the perfect example. And that skewed thinking is seen in how we view and use our money. That is the story of James 5. 
When James 5, James writes in chapter 5, verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh and will eat your flesh like fire. James is speaking metaphorically. Gold and silver don't corrode. He's saying that money corrupts our thinking and how we use our money because we think we can control life. Our thinking is corrupted and skewed. How's that true? Because we think we can control life, we assume that everything we have is because of our own planning and our hard work. So the money belongs to me. It's mine and I can do anything I want with it. And as a result, it results in an attitude that says, I'll do everything I can to earn more and I will do whatever I want with my money. And James tells us greed then takes over. History tells us that in every major power in the history of the world, as it grows more powerful, greed increases. The people at the top want more and more and more and they care less and less and less about the people under them. Ruthless business practices take over. Workers are underpaid and not treated fairly. You live a life of luxury and self-indulgence with no concern for anyone else. And is that not an apt description of our culture today? Those who have much typically, but not always, want more and more and are never satisfied and show little real care for those who don't have. You know, the greatest contributors to nonprofits and generosity come from the lower and middle class peoples, not from the upper class. But James is here writing to Christians. He's not writing to the culture in general. He is addressing believers. And he's saying to us that if we recognize that we don't control everything, we tend to realize that our assets were not just obtained because of what we did. We won't see them as fully ours and we'll be more generous. As Christians, we're supposed to believe that God is the one who controls the world in the future. He created the world and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Everything we have, all our wealth, all our possessions belongs to God because he is the creator and ruler of the world. King David is the perfect example of this. You know, towards the end of his reign, Israel was united and at peace. He was tremendously wealthy. He wanted to build a house for God, but God didn't allow him because he was a man of war. His son Solomon would. So David voluntarily paved the way. He could have had the state pay for it by taxes, but instead he called upon his people to voluntarily give, and they did. But then he gave a huge offering out of his own personal wealth that in today's money has been estimated to be worth upwards of $200 billion. He then declares his truth. But who am I? Who are my people that we could give anything to you, God? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. If we truly understand that, it will change how we use our wealth and will lead to greater generosity towards God and how we treat people around us. The whole concept of the tithe in the Old Testament is based upon this notion that everything we have belongs to God. The tithe became a benchmark that said we understand what we have belongs to you, God, and one proved it by giving the tithe, the 10%. I'm simply saying to you that the theology behind the tithe and everything that we have belongs to God 
is because he's the one in control. James again gives us two reasons we should hold on to our money lightly and not consider it all mine. He says, two, the illusion that we control life leads to skewed thinking and how we view our money as an example. First, he tells us not to put our trust in money because it is here today and can be gone tomorrow. James writes, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Our wealth can be lost in the blink of an eye. Wealth is not eternal. We don't control all the circumstances of life. People who had all their money in the banks before the Great Depression thought they were safe. Surely the last few decades tell us that our wealth can be gone in a heartbeat with the ups and downs of the stock market and the housing market and how things impact jobs and so on. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. We may think we are in control because of the money we have, but God is warning us that we are foolish to put our trust and hope in that. It doesn't mean that we don't plan and seek to be financially responsible and careful. James is saying that if that is where we place our trust and hope, we're going to be disappointed. James gives us a second reason. Our life is short and we can't take our money with us. What is your life? For you are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Most of us sitting here today realize our life is pretty short. Time goes by very quickly. When we're a teenager or in our 20s, we think life will go on forever. But once you hit the 50s, you begin to realize that more of life is behind you than ahead of you. It's in the 50s when most people in America buy cemetery plots. Life is fleeting. The psalmist writes in a very well-known psalm, our life is 70 years or strong 80 years, but the years are full of hard work and pain. They pass quickly and then we are gone. Psalm 90.10. He goes on to say that if we understand and appreciate how short life is, that wisdom will inform how we live right now. We won't hoard our money, but we'll share generously what we have. Jesus tells a story in Luke 12 about the rich man who had many crops. So he built many barns to store his wealth. And then he said to himself, I have so much wealth, more than I need. Let me just relax and indulge myself in whatever I want. Jesus says he died the next day. He didn't enjoy it. He couldn't take it with him. Others enjoyed his wealth. We can't take it with us, and what we have is only temporary. Our life is fleeting, so don't put your hope in it. So what is the answer? How do we approach life? James just told us that our life is like a mist that disappears, that appears and then disappears. Have you ever stepped outside in a cold morning and you breathe out and you see a little cloud or mist for a second or two and then it's gone? That's what our lives are like. Science tells us that everything is running down. That's the second law of thermodynamics. You leave food on a counter and eventually it begins to spoil, grows mold and rots. It becomes unusable. You have to throw it out. You buy a new car. You know, the first new car I bought was $4,500. To buy a new car today, you almost need a mortgage to afford one. And when you drive it off the lot, it begins to wear down. Maybe you get 10 years out of it, maybe 12 or 15. But eventually the car no longer works and it's junked. Stars wind down. Our sun is a star. Eventually it will die. And if it did, life would cease on earth. 
At a very young age, our bodies reach their physical peak. For men, it's much younger. For women, it's a little bit older. But for most of our lives, our bodies are winding down, even if we don't realize it until much later. And death is inevitable. We really are in control of our lives. So what do we do? James tells us very clearly in the last verse of our text, the third thing James tells us is, focus on and put your hope in the eternal. God is the one who ultimately controls what happens life. He's eternal. He doesn't fade away. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is saying God is in control. Jesus is coming back. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of that. God will establish control of this world. If we follow Jesus, we don't have to fear the unknown because we know that nothing can separate us from his love and presence. John tells us a rarely mentioned story about Jesus when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection at his home where they were gathering in Jerusalem. He writes, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. When we breathe out in cold air and that little cloud mist just quickly disappears, Jesus breathes out life that is eternal. He gives us his spirit to live with us, reminding us that God is always with us and nothing can separate us from his love. We're then reminded that God is in control. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that our lives are temporary, that we are jars of earth and clay and that our bodies are wasting away. So he encourages us to put our trust in Jesus and then says this, for things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. He is saying that if you understand you are not in control and that your life is very temporary, that is real wisdom. Because then you will understand that the only wise choice is to put your faith in Jesus who is eternal. That is the verse I would encourage you to remember. Let's say it together. For things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. Let's say it one more time. For things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. Here's an assignment for you. Go home and read Psalm 103. This psalm really points out how we don't control life. But it is a beautiful psalm that talks about all that God does for us. And while it tells us that our life is fleeting, he also tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Put your hope in Jesus. He's in control. And that will impact how we live our lives right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in this life where so many things are uncertain, we can call upon you and look to you and know that you are eternal and very certain, unchanging. And we see that in the person of example of Jesus. They came and lived amongst us. He rose, was crucified, rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And he promises that he's coming back. And once again, one day, you will establish control over this world. So we place our life in your hands. And Father, teach us. Teach us what that means and how we live our lives right now. Make us good stewards of the time we have here before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.